Welcome to the Public Forums Program of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. This program brings together scholars, specialist commentators, and the general public to explore historical perspectives on contemporary issues. The following forum, Why Go to the Moon, was recorded live in front of an audience at the Adler Planetarium, but the discussion continues online. We invite you to join us and add your voice to the conversation. Visit chstm.org moon, where you may view video from the event, add comments or questions in the discussion forum, read additional expert commentary, and access relevant resources. Good evening, everybody. Let's try that again. Good evening, everybody. Much better. All right. Uh, welcome to the Adler Planetarium. My name is Andrew Johnston. I'm the Vice President for Astronomy and Collections here at the Adler. Really happy to see you here uh, this evening. We've got a couple, we have a few days of programs uh, celebrating, helping to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the time when humans walked on another world. Well, we've had a lot of uh, exciting programs yesterday, today, and you, please do come back tomorrow. But tonight, we've got a, a couple of guests here who are going to be exploring some of the big questions around what happened 50 years ago when humans got to the moon, what's going to be happening now, and some of the big questions about moving forward. What does it mean to extend the human presence uh, out into the solar system, whether it's moon or, or somewhere else? So uh, first, uh, we're going to give them an opportunity to give us a quick uh, overview, then the three of us will go over there for the seats and we'll have a, we'll have a, a discussion. I'm actually really looking forward to it. We just spent the last 20, 30 minutes talking about some of the things we were going to talk about, and I'm pleased to say we ran out of time, so we'll just get into it here with, with everybody. Um, uh, so we, our two guests are Roger Launius. He's going to be coming up here. Roger is, yay! Roger was the chief historian at NASA and then associate director at the National Air and Space Museum. He's now retired, but only in name only. He, he keeps uh, writing books and, uh, and so forth. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, and then next to him, after that, is Mar Margaret Hiddle. <laughs> Margaret is a, is a historian at the University of Nebraska uh, and uh, explores the history of things like the history of colonization, which has a lot of interesting connections to the questions around uh, humans going into other worlds. So first, Roger, why don't you come up and give us a, a, a view of what was going on 50 years ago and what it means today. Okay, will do. Hey, good evening, everybody. I am Roger Lanius. Um, I did spend a number of years in Washington, D.C. Uh, at the National Air and Space Museum, which I hope is your favorite museum. Uh, no, the second favorite. Okay, all right. <laughs> anyway, I want to take you back uh, actually more than 50 years to those thrilling days of yesteryear uh, and talk a little bit about the decision to go to the moon and how it was accomplished and, and then something about what it means. Um, everybody probably knows this individual. And you may well be familiar with the statement that he made on the 25th of May of 1961 in which he said, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade of out, is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. And it goes on from there. Um, and by the way, Buzz Aldrin once told me that that returning him safely to Earth part was his favorite part of the speech. <laughs> so. Um, but that didn't come out of nowhere. He didn't just stand up and decide to do this one particular day. Uh, he made the decision to put NASA on the path 
of reaching for the moon through a whole series of issues that had been playing out for a number of years. And uh, some of you may be aware that in 1957, uh, the Soviet Union, who, with whom we were locked in a Cold War struggle, and it was a serious struggle, one in which there was going to be a winner and there was going to be a loser. It was not going to be a stalemate. Sooner or later, one of these two titans was going to be victorious in this Cold War. And, uh, and one of the key issues was playing this out in the context of science and technology. And in 1957, the Soviet Union demonstrated that they had a tremendous amount of technical capability that the Americans had yet to demonstrate when they launched Sputnik, the first Earth-circling satellite, uh, in October of that particular year. And they gave the Americans a black eye at that point in time. The Americans responded to that by creating NASA and doing a variety of other things, but there was a whole series of successive successes, wow, that's a bad sentence, uh, a whole series of, of Soviet successes that followed Sputnik, and the Americans didn't really look like they had their act together at all. And by 1961, this was very much the case. And so, when two things happened in April of 1961 that forced Kennedy to make a decision to go to the moon. The first one was the April 12th launch and, and one circle of the globe by Yuri Gagarin, a Soviet cosmonaut. And it was a, a, a wonderful stunt. And Gagarin was a very uh, attractive, sort of outgoing figure who was a very good representative for the Soviet Union, and he became a world celebrity overnight. Within a week of that, the American-backed invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs failed. Kennedy had give, given the go-ahead to do this invasion, to overthrow Castro, and it completely and utterly failed. So within the space of a week, the Soviets had succeeded at something important, and the Americans had failed at something. Uh, at that point, Kennedy says, I've got to change the subject. I have to do something to regain the, uh, the, the edge in terms of where things are going. The result of that was the decision to go to the moon. And he didn't know what that decision was going to be at first. He actually sent a letter, a memo, to his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, in which he said, you know, what can we do to beat the Russians? That's first and foremost what he cares about. What can we do to beat the Russians? Can we do it by, uh, you know, landing a probe on the moon? Can we do it by sending something to Mars? Can we do it by, uh, uh, by building a space station? What is it that we can do in which we can win? The result of that was a concerted effort on the part of, of NASA and other technical people in the federal government to reached the Apollo program and put it in the forefront of the American people, which Kennedy did on the 25th of May. Absent that Cold War crisis, and it was a very real crisis, absent that crisis, we never would have, have made these kinds of decisions, and we would not have undertaken Apollo, certainly not on the schedule that we did. This, by the end of the decade, becomes the critical component to this. By the way, as soon as Kennedy gives a speech, he starts having second thoughts. His budget director came into him and says, you know, have you seen what it's going to cost to do this? NASA's going to break the bank. Uh, we better figure something else out. 
And uh, Kennedy did go to meet Khrushchev just a couple of weeks after he gave this speech. And he proposed to Khrushchev at that time, maybe we should turn this into a joint program. And Khrushchev's response was not all that positive. So the basics of Apollo, and I've already stated the most important one, it was a geopolitical Cold War crisis that sparked the decision. And I cannot emphasize that enough because that is the one critical feature that made it possible to expend the resources necessary to do this in the 1960s. And those resources amounted to $25.4 billion in then-year dollars. You can multiply that by at least eight to get dollars today. Now, never mind the fact that I would believe that even multiplying that by eight, it's a bargain. But uh, not everybody would agree, and certainly people at the time didn't. Program life, 61 to 1972. First landing, of course, will take place the 50th anniversary tomorrow. Uh, and the last landing in December of 1972. Six landings altogether, three circumlunar flights. One of those, Apollo 13, uh, was not intended as a circumlunar flight, but that's how it ended up because they had an accident en route. Uh, but they brought them home alive, and that's a truly remarkable thing. And what made, made Apollo sustainable through all of this were a series of factors. One, it was an easily understood goal. We're beating the Russians. This is a space race. Everybody knows what a race is. Everybody knows how to, to sort of judge that. It was easily visualized by the public. And the imagery that you can see here is a NASA uh, piece of art done in the 60s to sort of help tell people what they were going to get with the Apollo program. They did hundreds of these pictures. Lots of them are online if you want to see them. I pulled that one off, of, off the web. Um, and it was a Cold War initiative that was war by another means in which nobody died, at least not intentionally. But it was a demonstration of technical and scientific expertise. And that's what was the real critical feature to it. It was, of course, technically and scientifically feasible, but it was, uh, act, it was capabilities that didn't exist yet. So they had to start uh, from a standing place to build those technologies, but with enough investment they could do it. And the political leadership recognized the opportunities and uh, sustained the commitment through the, through the space race. And we were successful in landing on the moon. Everybody's willing to accept we landed, right? <laughs> If not, it'll be a much longer discussion until I convince you. And so here's what it costs. I mean, if you want to see how this, uh, this plays out, uh, this is the percentage of the, of the U.S. government budget that was allocated to Apollo from the beginning of, of NASA uh, until the recent past. And what you can see is that huge spike in the mid-1960s in the left-hand side of this, this chart. That's the investment that took us to the moon. Over, uh, almost 4% of the federal budget is being spent on NASA at the middle part of the 1960s. Then as soon as that investment is, uh, uh, builds the infrastructure to go to the moon, the, pri the, the NASA budget starts going down, and it continues down, and it's now less than one half of 1% of the federal budget today. Very important to understand. We spend almost nothing on NASA and space exploration. We get a lot for it, I believe, but we don't spend very much on it. Here's another chart. I'll try to walk you through this. Apollo was never all that popular. There were people on both the political left and the political right who said it was a waste of money. 
they would, they would rather spend that money on other things. Depending upon which side of the aisle you're on, you might want to spend it on different things, but nonetheless, you wanted to spend it elsewhere. And so when you ask the public, you get a similar response to that. So if you look at the red line and how it changes over time, what you can see, it, they're, they're asking the question, are we spending too much on space? And the, and the yes is charted on that particular thing. And what you can see is it's, it's, it reaches a, a bottom of about 30% in the early 60s, and then it starts to ride up as we get to the moon landings, and by the time of the moon landings, pretty much everybody is saying, yeah, we're spending too much on this, we need to cut back. If you ask the question just about Apollo and it being worth the cost, the blue line chart said, and you get a similar sort of thing. Yes, it's, it, it's, um, it, it, it's costing too much. It's not really worth the cost. The only time in which we think that it is worth the cost is in 1969 at the time of the moon landings. Okay. But if you divorce the question of money from Apollo, you get the green line at the top. Everybody likes it as long as they don't have to pay for it. By the way, that should sound familiar because that's how we approach government today, too. Um, you know, over 60% of the public almost all the time says, yes, I like Apollo. It's great. I want to do it. But when you say, okay, well, how much are you willing to spend on it? Then you get the other, the other lines that are lower. So that's important to know. We did go to the moon. I would, I would suggest to you there's a half a dozen or so images that are really significant for sort of thinking about this. And, and I call this the pervasive power of Project Apollo because I, because I thought it had a nice alliteration. <laughs> so obviously this is an image that everybody has seen probably many, many, many times. Uh, this is Buzz Aldrin saluting the American flag just that they have planted it on the moon on the 20th of July of 1969. And you can see it there. Neil's off the, he's the one taking the picture, and he's certainly not in it at that point. A very significant image in my mind. The ceremonial thing of planting the flag was really, really important. And it, it harkens back to sort of the Euro European expansion beginning in the 16th century and what happened with explorers in that particular time. Every time you see somebody land on a new land, they will plant the flag of the sovereign they serve, they will raise their sword to heaven, and they will claim that land for the sovereign nation that they are representing. The Americans did this, and they did it intentionally, but then they said, we came in peace for all mankind. That difference in terms of the flag planting was very significant, and it was not lost on the rest of the world who was watching this, and that was the intention. I also think the boot print on the moon is really significant. Uh, Aldrin took this, these pictures. Uh, they, they took two of them. One, uh, you can see on the right where the, his boot is sort of beside where the boot print was. Then he stuck his foot out and he took one uh, without the boot on it, and that's the one you see on the left. The fascinating thing about this to me is there's, a, there's almost no seismic activity on the moon. There's no wind. There's no rain. There's none of the things that change the landscape here on Earth. And literally eons from now, unless somebody goes up there and walks all over it, which is a possibility uh, in the future, that will be there long after we are gone, where whoever visits the moon will be able to know that somebody was there from Earth. This is an image also that everyone has seen. Earthrise from Apollo 8, the classic image where you see the, 
the moon in the foreground, gray and lifeless, the earth, blue and white, hanging in the blackness of space, and a realization that dawned on people as a result of this, that we ourselves are living on a little spaceship here that we call Earth. And there aren't any lifeboats. And maybe we better take better care of it. That's a lesson we can still learn today, I would say. But nonetheless, uh, it did galvanize a lot of the, of the modern environmental movement of the 1960s. This one did the same. This is the whole Earth disk from Apollo 17, the first time they got a whole Earth image during the Apollo program from the moon. You can see um, uh, Africa up in the north, Antarctica down at the bottom of the, uh, of the screen, uh, the Persian Gulf, and so forth. It symbolizes the same sort of things, that we are living ourselves on a spaceship. And it did become the symbol for Earth Day thereafter. It's been used ever since. I, I, I will say one more thing about this. For years, NASA did not really use this image. Guess why? Doesn't show the United States. They learned their lesson, but nonetheless, uh, sort of a bit of, 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 of uh, sort of poor judgment on their part. And then the picture that I love to, to show is, and you can use any one of them you like, but is the launch of a Saturn V rocket. A massive vehicle, uh, 363 feet tall, seven and a half million pounds of thrust at launch. Anybody seen a space shuttle launch? A few people. Anybody see a Saturn V launch? Nobody. Okay. I've been to several uh, shuttle launches, and those of you who have been there, you know, you know what I mean. You see this thing light off in the distance. You're three and a half miles away from it, but you see it light first. And you don't hear it yet, because sound travels slower than light. Uh, and, but then you start to feel this thing beating on your chest more than you actually hear it. It's a powerful experience. And that's a shuttle. I can only imagine what a Saturn V would have been like. Uh, one of the astronauts told me, he says, it's a little bit like riding into orbit a small atomic bomb. And, and it is at some level. But it is un under total human control. And that is a remarkable technological achievement. And then finally, the image that, again, has been around the world. Everybody's seen this. I like to refer to it as the Buzz Aldrin full frontal. <laughs> and and, and it, it, it was taken during, during Apollo 11. Uh, Neil had the camera, and there aren't very many pictures of him. But uh, Buzz was walking away from him on the lunar surface. And uh, Neil called to him and says, hey, turn around. And so he swung around. You can see how his left arm is a little bit cocked. He swung that direction, and that's why that's cocked in that particular way. And then he snapped that picture just as, um, as he turned around. Uh, and, and you actually can see, if you look in the visor, you can see a reflection of Neil Armstrong. But this picture has been everywhere. It is the model for the MTV Video Music Awards. Andy Warhol did a series of lithographs based upon it that were in like day glow colors. There are all kinds of other episodes of using this. And we have seen it all times and all places. It's an iconic image associated with Apollo. But let me show you one more picture that suggests why we stopped going. You probably can't see that very well. So this is a panorama from Apollo 17. 
And uh, what you can see when I blow it up here in just a minute is, and I'll go ahead and do that. Right in the center is Jack Schmidt at the lunar rover standing at the edge of a crater. And when you see the larger panorama, what you see is miles and miles of nothing but miles and miles. We found nothing on the moon that we really, truly wanted. Terrestrial exploration, for it to be sustainable over long durations, there is always something that they found that they wanted. And I, I, you're probably going to say something about that in a few minutes, Margaret, but that was true here. We did not find those things. And that, I would contend, is one of the key reasons we have not gone back. Had we found something that would be commercially viable, that would make us wealthy, that would do other things like that, we would have figured out ways to go back many, many, many times. So returning to the moon has always been a challenge. And there's been numerous instances to try to do it. In 1989, standing on the steps of the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, George H.W. Bush announced a return to the moon and on to Mars. It became known as the Space Exploration Initiative. It lasted a couple of years, and then it died. It never got the budget necessary. In 2004, the second President Bush announced a vision for space exploration that suggested we were going to go back to the moon and on to Mars. That generated almost no momentum as well, and no budget increases to speak of to make it happen. Both of those initiatives ended when the administrations changed. In 2019, the Trump administration has proposed a return to the moon by 2024. And um, will it turn out exactly the way those previous initiatives did? I would suggest to you it probably will. Uh, and we can talk more about that at, at some later in, in Q&A or whatever. But I, there's no sign of any budget to follow this. And without that budget, it's not going to happen. So I like the family circus cartoon uh, in which you see this kid who's looking on television and he sees a spacecraft and he says, someday, someday I might travel to another planet, but I'm not sure why. The why is the core question that we have to ask about any of these activities. The why for Apollo was very clear. This was a Cold War objective. It was designed to beat the Russians. Having done that, there was no necessity to continue on. But I want to show you one other slide, and this plays right into another area <laughs> that, uh, that, that you will, that maybe is a little weird. But anyway, um, so what I've tried to do is to map the timeline for space exploration with the timeline for English settlement in America, in North America. So Christopher Columbus first raised his flag to heaven and claimed all this territory for Spain in 1492. The British tried to form a colony uh, at Roanoke, uh, Virginia in 1585, so 93 years after Columbus. The first permanent settlement of the English in North America was Jamestown in 1607, 115 years after Columbus. And the first New World Republic, the United States, was established in 1776, 284 years after Columbus. 
So I wanted to give you that timeline. So if you map space exploration on that, here's sort of what you get. So Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space in 1961. That's a given. That's a down on the bottom left. Apollo 11 landed eight years later in 1969. But using the trajectory of the earlier uh, English settlement of, the, of North America, uh, the first moon colony is not due to be established until 2076, 115 years after Gagarin. And the first off-world republic is not due to be established until 2245. 284 years after Gagarin. So let me suggest, maybe we're in this for the long haul. Maybe things don't happen overnight. Uh, maybe we're not going to live to see it all. Certainly the, American ex or the, the English experience in North America was a long uh, process. With that, I'm going to quit. I'm going to let my colleague come up and refute everything I just said. <laughs> and we'll go from there. I'm going to start tonight with a little story. It's a story that I've heard in Indian country that goes like this. It's 1966 in the Navajo homeland, and an old man and his grandson are out tending to their sheep when they encounter a group of Apollo astronauts uh, walking around the desert in full-body spacesuits, helmets, gloves, packs, everything. Uh, since the grandfather couldn't speak English, or maybe he just chose not to speak English. His, son, his grandson asked the NASA people what was going on. One of the NASA team explained that they're training for the mission to put a human on the moon. So the Navajo elder got very excited, and he asked if he could send a message to the moon with the astronauts. The NASA guys thought this was a great idea. They go find one of the tape recorders that they've been using to take notes, and they let the, the old man record his message in the Navajo language. Uh, they ask the grandson to tell them what his grandfather said, but the grandson just kind of laughed and refused to translate. So uh, the, the Navajo go back to their sheep and the astronauts finish their day of training and then go to Tuba City uh, for a beer uh, at the end of the day and they find a Navajo speaking person who's willing to translate uh, for a fee, of course. Um, and this is the message that the old man sent to the moon. Watch out for these guys. They come to take your land. So this humorous encounter uh, in, the, in the desert probably never happened, unfortunately, uh, but it contains fragments of the truth. Uh, the, uh, the Apollo program did use the Arizona desert, including parts of the Navajo reservation for training during the 1960s. Not to mention, the story invokes a history of broken treaties, stolen lands, and exploited resources through an ongoing process of colonization that was very real. Despite treaties guaranteeing their continued rights to their homeland, the United States had indeed taken Navajo lands for white homes and farms, for uranium mining, and even for preparing their mission to the moon. So the desert was supposed to be similar in environment to the moon or imagined to be, but they made some enhancements uh, blowing craters into the landscape um, for practice, I think, driving the lunar rover. 
Um, and uh, even though there, yeah, it is still there. Um, and it's actually one of the, it, it's a protected area. You can't actually go visit, but you can see it from the, from the edge. Um, so even though there weren't living creatures on the moon who could have listened to Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong play the old man's warning, even if the recording had been real, this story can help us understand American, Americans' relationship with the moon, past, present, and future. Questions about lunar exploration remain caught up in this living history of colonialism, capitalism, and empire building that have shaped our terrestrial wor world for the past 500 years, not just the past 50 years. Which leaves us with this lingering question. Will the United States come to take the moon, or at least its resources? Uh, one place to look for the answer is the stories uh, that, that we tell about space. Colonialism is embedded in the very language that we use to talk about space exploration. I mean, exploration, uh, frontier, conquer, discover, colonize, settle, pioneer. All of these are words that we use to talk about space. The idea of space as the final frontier, right, was fa uh, famously broadcast by everybody's favorite Iowan, Captain Kirk, uh, to American audiences across the country. And it projects this terrestrial logic of colonialism onto the moon and onto other celestial bodies. Take out your phones, pick any president since Kennedy, and Google their name plus space frontier, and I guarantee you, you will get at least one hit. This is the language that um, politicians use to talk about the moon. And then there are, um, are people today like Elon Musk who unflinchingly talk about establishing a colony on Mars. And it's also no coincidence that names like Columbia, Explorer, um, and Endeavor, which references one of British colonizer Captain Cook's ships, it's no coincidence that these names end up going into space as well. In the public and scientific narrative, the frontier fantasy is inherently positive. In the 1980s, Life magazine, in an article about the colonization of Mars, praised the, quote, frontier ethic that celebrates courage, independence, imagination, and vitality. It's an extension of the same narrative that historian Frederick Jackson Turner delivered in the 1890s, basically just across the street from where we are today. Um, it's known as the frontier thesis, um, and it expresses this idea that we all probably know, even if we've never heard it, called the frontier thesis before, that, um, that American democracy, which is a unique and wonderful thing, was formed by the rugged American frontier where hard work and individualism made Americans of white male pioneers. It's manifest destiny, the idea that America had the God-given right because God liked American democracy so much, um, to spread its empire and ideas across North America and across the globe. In this narrative framework, the extraterrestrial frontier carries on the legacy of the pioneer, energizing the human spirit and becoming a battleground for democracy and for the fate of the world. Uh, so this image that you have already seen, right, 
um, is very similar, as you suggested, to the image of um, Columbus with his, uh, with his flag. Um, and 20th century moon boosters drew direct lines between Christopher Columbus and other conquistadors and early explorers and what, what they hope, hoped and hoped to do in space. I think one of the best examples um, comes from a 1986 report advocating for the construction of a base on the moon. Um, the report was helmed by a Reagan-appointed former NASA administrator, Thomas Paine, and illustrated by Robert McCall, whose uh, artwork you can see here. Um, it's ever so subtly titled, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Um, and he says, as formerly written on the Western frontier, now on the space frontier. And I'll share one passage that I think perfectly captures all of this imagery that I'm talking about. Payne wrote, quote, five centuries after Columbus opened access to the new world, we can initiate the settlement of worlds beyond our planet of birth. The promise of virgin lands and the opportunity to live in freedom brought our ancestors to the shores of North America. Uh, now, Payne might have understood the moon, but he didn't have that great of an understanding of Earth history if you ask me. But he goes on to say, with America's pioneer heritage, technological preeminence, and economic strength, it's fitting that we should lead the people of this planet into space. So in this one example, Payne invokes the heroic discoverer, the idea that virgin lands were just waiting to be exploited and improved by pioneering Americans, and a global imperative toward freedom and progress. You can see these same ideas reflected in Mikal's work here, right? You have the conquistadors up in the upper left, um, and then that's mirrored by space exploration. Um, and this is not from the report, but it's similar to the images that I've seen in the report. Um, this one is specifically celebrating Arizona's place in that story. Um, and it's easy to imagine the moon as a virgin land ripe for American picking, given the lack of what we recognize as life. But we are living every day with the consequences of the frontier ethic that views the natural environment as nothing more than a resource to exploit. And can we be trusted, I would ask, to live responsibly with the moon's environment if we have thus far failed so spectacularly to do so here on Earth? For Native Americans, or hopefully anyone who knows anything about Western American history, um, this rhetoric of the frontier hold, doesn't hold the same vision of progress and promise. It's not a story of freedom. It's a story of dispossession and destruction. The Columbus that I know from history wasn't um, wasn't a heroic genius serving the good of humanity, but he was a lost, murderous nightmare, arrogantly relying on outdated science and on violence and slavery to amass his own fortune at, and power at the expense of millions of indigenous people. The frontier fantasy impacts not only how we think and act toward the moon, but how we act here on Earth as well. The rhetoric works on two levels. 
It erases the violent and ongoing impact of colonialism on Earth, freeing those in power from the, from the responsibility to deal with its effects. And it renders celestial bodies such as the moon sites of exploitation, inevitable exploitation, where the expansion of American influence and enterprise is not only in the public good, but is in fact the fulfillment of humanity's destiny. And in a lot of ways, I would argue, this imagery doesn't expand possibilities for the future, it limits them. Um, it allows only for a limited vision of the future where people of color and indigenous people continue to be excluded and the inequalities created by colonialism will be replicated in space and prolonged here on Earth. There are futures for the moon we haven't even imagined yet, although if you read some African-American and indigenous writers or artists, they are well on their way to imagining um, alternative futures. And the only way we can get there is by freeing ourselves from the language we use to talk about space, or freeing the language we use to talk about space from this violent legacy of colonialism and the North American frontier. So far, the United States answer to why go to the moon seems pretty clear. Exploration, exploitation, and dominance. The United States, at least in terms of policy and practice, I'm not trying to make a claim about individual Americans' perspectives here, but in terms of policy and practice, the US sees the moon primarily as a potential resource, one that can be exploited for scientific, military, patriotic, and economic purposes. Um, apparently not enough people have seen that uh, Apollo 17 picture of the miles and miles of nothing. Um, the question becomes then, can the United States or private or American citizens establish a presence on the moon and extract whatever resources may or may not be there? The technical ability to do this is obviously part of the question, and so is public and political drive, but I want to focus briefly on the legal ability. Despite American rhetoric claiming extraterrestrial frontiers, who owns, oh, on that one. who owns the moon and its resources? Who gets to decide? And obviously, we're 50 years after Apollo 11. We're not the first people in this room to ever ask that question. Um, and as early as the 1950s, global leaders met to talk about um, how to handle the impending reality of human presence on the moon and in space more generally. Uh, the 1967 Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States and in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, uh, which you can just call the Outer Space Treaty and everyone will know what you mean, articulated the principle that exploration and use of space must be for, quote, the benefit and use of all mankind. It put limitations on weapons in space. Um, it required nations to regulate activities in space, even if they were carried out by private citizens, and made them responsible for whatever they put up in space as well, um, including, I think, when it comes down. Um, and Article 2 of the treaty established something known as the non-appropriation principle, which basically just states that no nation, um, no matter how many flags they stick in the moon, can claim territory, um, can claim exclusive jurisdiction or sovereignty over 
territory. And this is a treaty that the United States signed. The treaty does not, however, say anything about resources. Um, then there's the Moon Treaty, which was drafted in uh, 1979 by um, non-spacefaring nations in the UN. Uh, and they sought to kind of fill this gap to address the issue of resources in space. And it goes further with that common good of mankind statement and says that the moon and its natural resources are the, quote, common heritage of mankind. Um, and it, it suggests that not only should access to those resources remain open, but they should also be distributed equitably among all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world have a right to benefit from those resources. None of the actually spacefaring nations have ever signed the Moon Treaty, which I think is pretty good evidence, um, especially since the main thing that the Moon Treaty adds is this restriction on accessing resources, that the Outer Space Treaty does not have a similar prohibition on private individuals with state approval mining celestial bodies like the Moon. So on the surface, though, the Outer Space Treaty does seem to prohibit colonization and empire building beyond Earth's atmosphere. But that interpretation isn't the consensus among American legal scholars who consistently argue that laws leave room for claiming and taking not just resources, but sometimes territory as well. Um, not to mention what the long history of American expansion teaches us is that when it comes to potentially profitable resources, it doesn't matter how many treaties the United States has signed, uh, resources trump promises every single time. So for instance, Native American nations have signed more than 500 treaties with the United States since, seven, since the 1770s. The United States has broken and in many cases continues to violate every single one. And that's not an exaggeration. Every single treaty the United States made with Native nations, it has broken. Um, one of the best documented examples is what happened to the Lakota when Americans' desire for gold conflicted with treaty protections against taking resources from Lakota lands. So in the middle of the 19th century, the U.S. Army attempted to invade the Lakota homelands to build railroads, um, partially to access uh, gold fields further west. And the Lakota successfully fought the U.S. Army. Um, and it was only when the U.S. promised to burn their forts and reroute the railroads that the Lakota signed a treaty known as the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868. And one of the things that the, that the treaty did was, you can see that, that big yellow space, that's all Lakota territory, according to the treaty. Um, and then trespassing U.S. citizens find gold in the Black Hills. Now, does the Army do what the treaty says and remove American citizens from the Black Hills? No, it does not. In fact, it instead attacks the Lakota people um, who tried to prevent Americans from mining in their territory uh, in, against the treaty. Um, this ultimately leads to the Wounded Knee Massacre where more than 200 men, women, and children were murdered by the, by the US Army. Um, and as you can see um, on the map, the US then unilaterally, so without Lakota consent and without compensation, steals 
all of that land in both yellow and orange, and what the Lakota people are left with is the land in red, a few scattered reservations. And then the United States passes more laws that reduce those reservations. Um, total across the country, Indian, um, Indian reservations are reduced uh, by 90 million acres um, from what they reserved in treaties, or two-thirds of the land that they reserved in treaties is taken um, in the 20th century by the United States. So uh, that's not exactly a great track record when it comes to thinking about, uh, about space treaties. If the United States wants something badly enough, it will find its way around a treaty. Um, and that continues today in uh, Lakota, Lakota territory um, where private companies still are extracting copper, uranium, and oil from Lakota lands. The Lakota bear the brunt of the health and environmental impacts without sharing in the profits. And if you look closely at US space policies, US law is already writing its way around the treaties. Um, so in 1984, President Reagan signed the Commercial Space Launch Act which was intended to, to, make a, to create a climate that encouraged private corporations to invest in space. Um, and it established the Office of Commercial Space Transport whose purpose is, quote, to encourage, facilitate, and promote commercial space launches by the private sector, mentioning specifically the benefits of resource, resource extraction for the American economy. This office still exists today, although it's chronically underfunded. Um, and recently, the present administration was talking about upping the funding for um, this office. Then in 2014 and 2015, respectively, President Obama signed uh, two different laws into effect, one of which is known as the Space Act, the Spurring Private Aerospace Competitiveness and Enterprise Act. And these laws state that US citizens or US sanctioned corporations, uh, if they mine materials from, for instance, asteroids, they're entitled to full use and profits of those resources. And they can prevent other people from accessing those resources. So people from other countries, they would have the right to make their claims exclusive. Um, there's disagreement in the international legal community about whether or not this violates the Outer Space Treaty. Um, but the consensus among American legal scholars goes more along the lines of how um, the high seas have been interpreted as a common uh, um, uh, uh, Global commons where um, states and private entities are entitled to extract and use resources for their own benefit without any requirement for equitable distribution. These laws and others like them work to ensure that the moon and other celestial bodies support US expansion beyond terrestrial borders. I think our colonial history also makes it impossible to put much trust in lofty phrases like for the benefit of all mankind, especially when, the, when colonial history is erased and ignored. Um, just look at the craters blasted into the Navajo homeland or the rivers there that have been turned yellow and led to, um, uh, led to a rise in cancer among Navajo citizens. Uh, from uranium mining. 
As we speak, some in the international scientific community are deploying the rhetoric, this rhetoric of universal good to dismiss the concerns of indigenous Hawaiians who are being arrested at Mauna Kea because their rights to a sacred part of their sovereign homeland remain inferior to the universal benefit of an advanced telescope. Dispossession is just the price that indigenous people are expected to pay for the benefit of humanity. And to be clear, I don't mean to pit indigenous people against a monolithic idea of science. Indigenous people are and have always been scientists themselves and they have explored the world and the cosmos in ways that are just as complex as Western science and often have worked um, together, found ways to work together with Western science. But indigenous people and other marginalized people around the world have never been fully or equally welcomed into the collective of mankind. Asking to consider who benefits from exploring and exploiting the moon and who pays the cost isn't just a hypothetical, it's present reality. And if we can't balance competing interests on Earth, if we refuse to reconcile with the legacies of colonialism, how can we be trusted to find that balance on the moon or beyond? Obviously, as a historian, I think that our actions in space are intimately connected to our actions on Earth and vice versa. Um, it's easy, I think, to dismiss the violent legacy of colonialism because as far as we know, um, there aren't living beings whose land can be taken from them, right, in, um, in outer space. Uh, but I, I still don't think we can escape uh, what I have cleverly decided to call the gravitational pull of um, our colonial history. Um, and before we go back to the moon, maybe we should start by honoring treaties and responsibly utilizing resources here on Earth, or space really will be just another version of the American frontier. Um, the fictional Navajo elders story, or message in the story that I shared at the beginning was never really meant for the moon. Um, I think it was meant as a warning to us here on Earth. Thank you. So, uh, I, uh, that was fantastic, both of you. That, that was just a really great way to get the conversation uh, uh, started here. I'm going to get the ball rolling by, by posing, I don't know, three or four uh, questions to, to you both, and then, then we've got an opportunity to, to open it up there. Uh, posing uh, and addressing these kinds of interesting questions is why those of us that work here are in the museum business. And, uh, and I should also uh, uh, mention uh, we have other uh, collaborators that help make this possible, our friends and colleagues at the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, which, uh, which, which provided the resources to, to make this happen tonight here. We're filming it uh, tonight, so thank you to our friends at the consortium. Yeah. But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that, that you both raised in the beginning. Um, and I want to start with a, uh, a maybe a couple of geopolitical questions. Um, we'll, start, we'll start over here, uh, uh, Roger, if, if you don't mind. Um, I've often thought that when we talk about, uh, when you explain when we talked about the Apollo program 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you didn't really need to give people that context because the Cold War was still on. You, know, you, you didn't need to explain to people that, well, first of all, you need to explain that people walked on the moon, which you, you do have to get to that. But um, uh, 
what is the kind of, and you, t- you explored that geopolitical context, didn't just, but, but looking forward, what kind of geopolitical context would you think would set us up for talking about people going to the moon and beyond? Do you see any geopolitical alignment coming about that would, th- that would be in any way similar to what was going on in the Cold War, that people would be motivated to, yeah, let's spend a trillion dollars to go to Mars, for example? Yeah, well, I, I, it, it won't be similar to the Cold War environment. Uh, you know, there, there are some reasons to undertake lunar missions. And, uh, and I would contend that uh, there's a scientific purpose that is, that is quite valid. Um, and in that context, I could see a research station established on the moon. I think it would be, and here's where the geopolitics comes in, it would be an international consortium that does this. And, um, and it would look a lot like Antarctica. Uh, with, uh, you know, people cycled in and out, uh, technical people, scientific people, and so forth. And, uh, and, but it would not be a place where people would go and live and, and colonize, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's foreseeable, I think, in the, you know, in the first half of the, of the 21st century and certainly before the end of this century. And how long that would last is anybody's guess. Um, but but that's that's something I could foresee, and so then it would that that would make it a uh, sort of something that uh, various nations would pool resources to create, hmm. and it would look, as I said, like Antarctica. But the International Space Station that's up today uh, is an exemplar of this particular approach, uh, and I could see that extended to the lunar surface. Hmm. So perhaps a spirit of cooperation instead of competition, but of course there are other geopolitical contexts. I mean, the we, I guess we could call it now the, the classical age of colonization. You know, we maybe don't use that word, but uh, uh, but uh, what do you think, Margaret? I mean, are, are there ways that you see con- uh, how that could be evolving to maybe give people reasons to go to the moon or give give pause for those kind of plans? Yeah, I wonder how much. Um, the impacts of climate change will change the geopolitical circumstances and lead to increased competition. Um, And I mean, like you hear every once in a while stories about Russia or China trying to mine um, or like trying to find ways to mine in Antarctica. And I don't know how, um, how like realistic those plans are, how far, if it's just rhetoric. Um, But, but uh, I, would wonder how, as resources become more scarce on Earth, um, which is basically in a lot of ways what happened in countries like Great Britain with growing populations um, when they finally started um, expanding in uh, the U.S. behind Spain. Um, That's one of the things that drove them um, to Uh colonize North America. So, you know, we obviously don't know where that's going, but I worry that that could lead to less cooperation and more competition. So there is an Antarctic treaty that, uh, that both the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union at the time signed that says we will not extract resources from Antarctica. However, as you've, you've explained, you know, right now it's pretty expensive to extract resources from Antarctica, but that can change, can it, when, the, when it does become cost-effective? To, yes, to when there's that. less ice. <laughs> well, uh, if I can say something oh, about please, that. Oh, ju- yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the Antarctic Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty are essentially the same treaty. Um, 
Antarctic Treaty was written in 1960 and ratified at that point. Outer Space Treaty shortly thereafter. Uh, it is a pro both of those treaties are a product of the Cold War. Um, and, and fundamentally they are about both the Americans and the Russians realizing that they couldn't do whatever they wanted in either Antarctica or in space. So the best thing to do is nobody gets to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that's fundamentally how it turned out. So, uh, so in Antarctica, there are, uh, you know, there's a, a, a treaty system in place, a governing system in place, and, and multiple uh, uh, stations that are under the control of various nations. And, and there's activities that are taking place. But commercial activities are expressly prohibited. And, uh, and military things, I mean, the Americans, for instance, wanted to use it as a place to test nuclear weapons. Uh, and everybody else lined up and said, no, we're not going to let you do that. The, and one of the outgrowths of that was the, was the Antarctic Treaty. Um, but there are pressures on that system today. And in the, in the aftermath of the Cold War, there's been more pressures on the system than there was during the Cold War, because it, it, it was an approach in Antarctica that seemed to work for, the, for, the, for all the people who were engaged in Cold War activities. And the, sa the same was true in space. So have things changed sufficiently enough that they would overturn those treaties? It's not going to happen easily. Uh, but it's not to say it won't happen. Yeah, and, and in Antarctica, not every nation, it also says we, that the nations that sign here do not make territorial claims. However, several nations do have territorial claims. Including on, on the United States. No, the United States does not have a territorial claim. Yeah, actually, claim. they do. No. Yeah, to McMurdo. Never mind. Uh, yeah, it doesn't okay, matter. Okay. We can yeah. debate that later. Yeah, fine. fine. That's <laughs> but, not, that's uh, a, come back next month. We'll have another program. <laughs> but, um, but yes, uh, so, so what they did was essentially, and the way they said it at the time was, we are going to put our territorial claims in the deep freeze. Uh, they're preserved, they're there, but we don't exercise them. So, so let's talk about territorial claims uh, a little bit, because uh, if you were to go back to the Cold War or, or before that, these are, these are nation states, right? These are agreements between nation states to behave one way or, or another. Now we're entering this interesting era where it's not just completely nation states uh, and there are private privately funded actors that, that are becoming uh, more active w what are the implications you see there uh, that's actually very similar I would argue to the history of colonization in the quote unquote new world mm. um, private companies and have have been the backbone of colonization for a long time. I mean, it's the East India mm. Trading Company, the Hudson Bay Company. Um, they're, they're doing the work of colonialism on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, think about the example of Hawaii. Um, it's private sugar planters who overthrow the, um, the, the Kanaka Maoli, the Hawaiian government, mm -hmm. and then the United States all too happily um, annexes this territory, um, which becomes a great military base, has other, um, other really strategic functions. It's great for, for the telescopes, US. too. Uh, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, I think that that actually is not something new, and I would argue that um, oh. as... Uh, this isn't my argument. I think other historians have made this argument that Apollo 11 is actually the aberration in being publicly funded and um, that most space exploration in the United States has been privately funded. Hmm. You, you would disagree? I would disagree. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go. 
Go ahead. Well, I guess the argument that I've seen is that if you look at the establishment of um, of uh, observatories in the United States in the 19th century, um, John Quincy Adams wanted them to be publicly funded, but he could never get the um, the public funding for that. Mm. Um, and uh, then private individuals are the ones who founded most of the observatories. Mm. I would think it's also similar to railroads, which are private companies but heavily subsidized by the federal government. Mm. Um, and so it's this... Um, it's a cooperation between the two rather than simply the government or simply private enterprise. Okay. No, I, I get your point. That's an argument made by Alex McDonald in a book yeah. that he did called The Long Space Age about 19th century uh, observatories and how most of those were founded and operated as private activities. And that's absolutely true. And if you want to think of stargazing as space exploration, you can. But I would define it a little differently. Yeah. So, long space age. Let's talk about timelines. Yeah. Uh, Roger, you had that interesting timeline up there of comparing, uh, you know, Europeans uh, coming to North America to... I, I always find it interesting that in our, in our science fiction, they always get the timeline wrong. They, no, they, they always predict a future, and they need to add one or two centuries, you know, to that. Do you... Uh, maybe do you think that's there's something human about that? We think it's going to be right around the corner. And do you think there's connections between that and these fits and starts of U.S. space policy over the last couple decades? Of oh, we can do this in the next five or six years, and it's like no, this actually takes more time than that. Or do you think there's something that, uh, about that that we always misjudge how much time? Oh, yeah. No, we totally misjudge time. Uh, and 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 by the way. The timeline I showed you is, is not within the space of a person's lifetime. It's much, much right. longer than that. So, uh, you know, if you want to accept that timeline, it means you're never going to see very much activity uh, because, <laughs> because the big events are going to happen somewhere down the pike after you're gone. The, um, and, and in terms of politically, uh, we never think beyond the next election. That's right. true for members of Congress. It's true for senators with six years. That's true for a president uh, of four years. Why do you think that the Trump administration says we need to return to the moon by 2024? Mm -hmm. That would be, assuming he wins election, and that's an open question, and I won't say any more about that. <laughs> unless you want me to. <laughs> well, but, but that would be the last year of a second term for Trump, and that's why that's the timeline. There is no other reason for that to be the timeline. <laughs> any, any thoughts about uh, timelines? There, there are different, uh, you, some people would make a case that people think differently about how we use, uh, how different cultures use, sp use space, but also think about time. Any, any, any thoughts about there about how uh, linkages between the, the heritage of the things you, you were talking about and, and thinking forward about how we, we expand potentially into the solar system? Um, well, I mean, I think to go to go back a little, maybe I think just Americans are forgetful too, and uh -huh. we forget that we've had these conversations every, you know, every couple, at least every other presidency, but usually every presidency. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a, it seems like a new conversation every time. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't know about the the other question. Um, I do think that it's important to think about the ways um, or uh, think about what um, non-Western ways of knowing and thinking about space 
um, can contribute to global conversations about what human presence in space in the future might look like, and that's not something that's been part of the conversation. So expand on that. What what are uh, what can we learn? How can we? Ex how can? What are some new perspectives that can be brought to that um, discussion? We talk a lot about how space exploration. We learn a lot about space, but then we learn a, we learn more about this world here. So, yeah. So I think one of the things to think about is. Um, what that might mean for, um, well, I don't know. So since I've been thinking about resource rights and resource extraction, um, I, I there are um, certain, so in New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, there is a river that has been granted um, basically personhood mm -hmm. rights like corporations have in the United States, only it's a river. <laughs> um, and the, it, you know, these, th there's this recognition that um, certain environmental, um, certain environmental aspects are more than just inert um, spaces to be used by humans and might actually have some rights uh, for, for in and of themselves. And what does it mean if we think of the moon, for example, as an entity that might have rights um, or Mars? Um, so is it, do we have the right to do something like terraforming, if it's even possible? And I mean, I, I'm yeah. not saying that it is possible, but terraforming would completely erase the history of Mars. And, um, you know, do we as human beings have the right to transform environments like that? I think that um, in, from a Western perspective, it's easier to say yes, but there are other perspectives that might argue that um, humans don't have the right to change their environment like that. So, well, humans, we're, we're doing a, an okay job of changing our environment here, you know, uh, <laughs> for better or worse. But, but Roger, any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I'm, I, how does the conversation get broader? I mean, we do, s NASA and other space agencies talk about planetary protection. What they mean by that is not exporting our microbes to other, to other worlds until we do it intentionally so, right. uh, someday. But... Um, do you see the signs in you know contemporary space policy circles of, of an interest or an opening for broadening the, the discussion for, to include these kind of perspectives? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, planetary protection is also an interesting question in, in this sense. I mean, it comes in two forms. Uh, so there's forward contamination and not sending our microbes to Mars or something like that. But that's that's almost always about we don't want to, uh, you know, soil that environment because our scientists want to be able to study right. it. And it has nothing to say about the planet itself or any organisms that might exist there. Yeah. Uh, so, and back contamination, bringing stuff back here that might have bacteria or something uh, from Mars is all about something that could kill us. I mean, fundamentally, that's what it's about. Yeah. So, you know, even the planetary protection program is really sort of built around these sort of self-centered uh, self ideas. Right. Um, I want to finish maybe two, two thoughts, and then we'll open it up. I want to talk a little bit about, about resources, resource extraction from the moon and Mars, and asteroids. All these amazing ideas are floated around there. Uh, what are your thoughts about how realistic that kind of thing is? Uh, I look forward to seeing a company that can actually do something along those lines, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, you know... There, there are, in theory, resources on the moon that could be utilized by humans who are on the moon, in theory. 
there is a, and you've probably seen the, the stories about this, uh, evidence to suggest that there might be deposits of, of ice buried in a crater on the, on, the, on the lunar poles, both south and north. Um, that, that is not a given. Uh, there, there has not really been a positive uh, confirmation of that as the case, and I know a number of scientists who will tell you that they think that's a false positive. Uh, that if it's there at all, it's in much smaller percentages than is thought. On the other hand, if it is there, it does change the dynamics. Assuming you can get to it, you can mine it, you can extract it, and you can break it into hydrogen and oxygen and utilize it. Um, but to what purpose? It seems to me that it's only about sustaining whatever operations are on the moon, of which there are none today, and probably will not be a lot in the future, even if there is some. Um, is there other ma uh, materials that might be mined there that has monetary value? And the one that everybody talks about, Harrison Schmidt, the Apollo 17 astronaut, who is the only geologist to ever do field work on another body in the solar system, uh, sort of makes him a distinct individual in that regard. Uh, he's, he's distinct. Yeah, <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, he's talking about helium-3 as something that could be mined on the moon. And obviously there, there is evidence from the Apollo program that suggests that there is some helium-3 there. Um, but it's sort of theoretical in every form at this point. It's theoretically there. It can theoretically be mined. It can theoretically be refined. And it can theoretically be used in, in some machine that will create energy. But the operative term here is theoretically. Right. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of activities that have to take place before there's anybody who's going to spend any money to try to do much with that. Uh, Margaret, a, a little bit more about resources, uh, just setting aside maybe the, the business case for it, although if you want to go there, go there too, but uh, expand a little bit more on how the, sort of the, 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 legal, um, the legal guidelines that have come about in recent, uh, about the difference between not claiming territory, but then also giving entities access to resources that, that might, they may find, and then some of the implications for that, that that would give people motivations for doing this sort of thing. Yeah, so like I, um, like I said, it's kind of applying um, a legal system that has been put in place um, on the oceans. Um, and it's also um, part of the United States legal system where like you can own the land but not necessarily own the minerals beneath the land or vice right. versa. Um, and so there's an argument that um, as once resources are um, extracted from a celestial body, they're no longer part of the celestial body right. and therefore um, you can do whatever uh, you want with them a private citizen or um, a, a nation state. Um, and there is there is international agreement about this, although I have found a pretty strong consensus among American scholars that that's, that's great um, <laughs> and perfectly allowable um, and a really good idea. Um, and uh, I think, I mean... I, I think that it's part of the frontier fantasy creeping into space as well, right? Um, because this is what we did in the West. Um, this is what this is uh, what the United States has done 
um, historically. It worked out great in the past. And I think there's, you know, the hope of, like, the, this fantasy of another gold rush mm. on an asteroid um, is, I think, really pervasive and influences what people expect to find in space, whether it's there or or not. So I think it's as much about the story we're telling about space as about the actual materials there, maybe. Great. One last thought for these two, and then we'll open it up. Uh, we've been... Um, I. We've been asking some some tough questions here, and we've been saying uh, uh, which which is great. Uh, I don't think we do that often enough in the in the space business uh, in general. Uh, uh, Margaret, do you um, in, in your work uh, how how's it going making connections with the space enthusiast or space policy world? There are people. Do you find them open and receptive to to these kinds of things, or or is it a challenge? Or so my background is in indigenous treaties. I talk about pine trees and wild rice and uh, fish. That's, that's <laughs> what I do. That's okay. my scholarship. And I was brought in to the, uh, the space community um, by, um, by scientists who were thinking about questions of decolonizing space mm -hmm. um, and um, trying to Break down, um, break break down barriers within the scientific community and bring people in. So my experience um, has has been, you know, very welcoming Great. in this small segment of this scientific community that I am um, aware of. So I'm not sure I can give the best the best answer to that. And I think one of the things that it makes me wonder is, um, so the group of people um, that I know is very diverse. Um, it's racially diverse, gender diverse. Um, it's just it's it's a it's more diverse than the rest of the scientific community right. more generally, I think. And I wonder how much um, the homogeneity of the scientific community more generally can sometimes lead to a homogeneity of ideas. Um, and I, I don't have a solution for that other than having more conversations like this with more people outside of our own disciplines. I mean, working at a university, I never talk to um, people in the science departments as someone who's in um, indigenous studies and history, right? It's a very isolated research world, and so it's always so refreshing to be able to actually have yeah. these conversations across disciplines, yeah. which I think should happen more. And Roger, same kind of question for you. I mean, you've, you know, uh, You've worked in the space history business, and the, and I've been in the space museum business for you know uh, for many decades now. And we always strike a balance between being advocates for for this, but also trying to ask challenging questions. You've talked a little bit about uh, the enthusiasm for space. Sometimes goes beyond enthusiasm. Do, do, uh, you know when either private or, or public sort of boosters for space? Do you, do you find they're interested in asking these kind of questions, or is it tough? Uh, it's tough in a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes you do. Um, yeah, you know, there is sort of a religion of space flight. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how else to characterize it. It's, it, it's sort of this, this fundamental set of beliefs that are a part of this about how things are going to be uh, in the future, and, and it's an expansion of sort of what we think of as the best on Earth somewhere else. Um, and, and we conveniently omit the worst of Earth, uh, which would also get transferred in the process. The, um, and, and in the space community, uh, the people who are sort of engaged in this, uh, they, 
they have something of an echo chamber, so they tend to sort of talk to each other and reinforce each other. And, um, and that's never a good thing, quite frankly. Uh, there's always some importance to, to have other opinions, other ideas sort of brought into this. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to correct people when they, when they ask me about the, the new space entrepreneurs and how they are going to change everything. And, um, and I, keep, I keep pushing back. How are they going to change everything? What is the business case that these individuals are going to pursue long term to do things in the private sector? Uh, yes, they can become NASA contractors, and, and believe me, they have. Yeah. Um, but if, if we're talking about things beyond uh, it's it's uh, beyond that particular thing. What is the business case for a SpaceX trip to the moon or Mars? Um, he, you know, they don't have an unlimited budget there. Obviously, he's a billionaire, and maybe they can do certain things. But but is there a future in something like this on a private sector? And I, I don't see it. I I still see the nation state as the primary factor in all of these. Uh, expansive space activities, especially those that involve humans. And, um, and, and it may be a consortium of nation states. I do believe that that's sort of where the future lies. Great. Well, we do have some time for, to, to open up uh, for questions. So if you have a question, please put your, uh, put your hand up. And I'll repeat and maybe paraphrase from here because, because we are recording. So if you have a question, OK, yes, sir, right in the front. So, so the question is about the arrival of China on the space scene, leading to a new era of cooperation or competition in space. Who wants to go first? I'm happy to talk about All right. that. Okay. So, um, so China does have some capabilities. There's no doubt about that, and they have viewed this as important to them as a nation state for prestige purposes, as much as any reason. They also are able to push science and technology inside the nation, and that helps them economically at, at some level. So, so they have good reasons for wanting to do these things. Uh, they, began, they, they, they flew their first uh, Taikonaut in 2003. <laughs> uh, they have flown what, maybe a half a dozen flights since then, including one with an orbital vehicle that, uh, that they called a space station, but it was more like a little workshop. <laughs> um, and there's been a collective ho-hum. Yeah. I, I usually hear this, this, this question about China couched as, will that spark another space race? I don't see it. We don't fear the Chinese the way we feared the Russians. And mostly we want to trade with them. That's, <laughs> you know, it's, not that, it's not that we view them as somebody that's going to nuke us at any moment. Now, and, and maybe the Cold War was irrational too, but it was, but it was present. And we feared, I can remember doing this when I was a kid in the mid-1960s, crawling under my desk yeah. for duck and cover exercises that like, like that would protect me from a nuclear blast. <laughs> I thought it was stupid when I was 10. And, and now I know it was. But, but be that as it may, that was, a, uh, that was a real fear, and the Russians had the same fear of us, by the way. It's not, it, it worked both ways. We do not have those fears at all with China. Right. I should I ask for another, or do you have anything to add to that? I'm not sure that I have 
That's okay. All right. Okay. I think I saw a hand. Yeah, right there. Yeah, so, she, uh, so, so the questions about, uh, well, nonprofit organizations. We've yeah. talked about nation states. We've talked about sort of corporate uh, or, or privately held interests. But, but then it's a good question about nonprofit entities. Uh, you mentioned one, the Planetary Society, which uh, raises money for, for exploration uh, of other worlds. And what could happen there? And what, what could be the implications there for, uh, for, I don't know, for exploration, but also some of the things we've been bringing up before? Who wants to jump in? I, I can go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess where I would start is I think that there are some legal mechanisms in place that um, that uh, groups like that would have to deal with. So, for instance, from my understanding of the Outer Space Treaty, um, nation states have to regulate um, basically anybody, any of their citizens who go in space or put anything in space. And there are legal mechanisms in the United States, like the um, commercial space board, sure. where like you have to go through, I mean, there's something like 63 permits pending in there right now. Um, and so I think that there are actually existing legal mechanisms, both in the United States and elsewhere in the world, um, that could potentially facilitate that if um, the uh, like technological right. aspect was there. All right, great. Well, um, we are just about out of time. I'm going to close with one final question for both of you. And I, and I did not warn them I was asking this, but it's kind of obvious because we titled the event tonight, Why Go to the Moon? Roger, why go to the moon? I think there's an opportunity to learn more about the cosmos. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think we learned a lot with the Apollo program, but I, I would suggest that uh, from a scientific perspective, there's a lot, there's just as many questions that were raised by what we learned from going there uh, initially that uh, we can learn a lot more through the process. And I'd like to see that happen on a more sustained basis. As I, you know, I've sort of been lobbying for what I think is a, is a way forward, and that would be some sort of a, a, a lunar base that would be a scientific research station. And, uh, and I'd love to see that happen, and I think that that's the fundamental reason why we would do it, and it would have to be done as an international consortium. Margaret, why go to the moon? Uh, well, my cynical answer is don't go to the moon. <laughs> um, deal with problems here, deal with questions here first. Um, but at the same time, we were talking about this earlier, there is a sense in which, I mean, I grew up with these narratives of space exploration with um, the, you know, adventuring frontier spirit, just as much a part of like my popular culture as a kid as well. And there is something kind of hopeful and something kind of, I don't know, makes you feel a little warm inside about thinking about how the moon or space more generally could be a place where we move beyond colonialism and do create a more inclusive, equitable future without um, some of the, some of the um, baggage from the past. But I would say that that doesn't mean we ignore the past. It means we, um, we bring it with us just as, um, as, uh, like a lesson, not no, that's reductive, but you know, you know <laughs> what I mean. That like we learn from the past and um, do better. I think that you know there's maybe a hope of doing better on the moon. Fantastic. Well, I want to just close out tonight by saying thanks again to our uh, colleagues at the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine for making this possible. Thanks to our speakers, Margaret Hill, Roger Lanes, and thanks all of you for being here tonight. Take care, everybody. Good night.
Thank you for listening, and please visit chstm.org moon to continue the conversation.